Late into the night of March the 18th in 1919, and the early morning after, jazz floated into the damp, dark air from homes and bars across New Orleans and its suburbs. Normally, such an outpouring of music is and was a product of celebration. But on this particular spring night, the sound signaled something much more sinister, as New Orleanians were playing jazz music out of the fear for their very lives. Chilling thrills, unexplained mysteries, and creepy stories that actually occurred. Welcome to Freakier Than Fiction. I'm your host Chad, and each episode together we will dive into the world of the unknown. So, if that kind of thing interests you, and you haven't done this already, then hit that follow or subscribe button so you don't miss the next freaky episode. As this podcast is intended for mature audiences, listener discretion is advised. A real-life boogeyman, or something worse, lurked in New Orleans, and its citizens were desperate to do anything in their limited power to protect their families. This is the story of the Axemen of New Orleans. First attack occurred on May the 23rd in 1918. Andrew Maggio was celebrating his acceptance into the Navy with a night of drinking in New Orleans. Stumbling home drunk, he heard strange groans coming from the apartment next door at Upper Line and Magnolia Streets. In that apartment, lived his brother Joseph Maggio and his sister-in-law Catherine Maggio, who were lying still with their throats slit and their heads bashed in with an axe. Joseph, an Italian grocer, was still alive when Andrew found him, but died minutes later. Catherine's throat was cut so severely that her head was nearly off her shoulders. A bloody razor belonging to Andrew's barbershop was the primary murder weapon. Questioning how Andrew couldn't hear the forced entry of a crazed axe murderer, the police arrested him as the primary suspect of the murder of the Italian couple. However, police soon found out that Andrew was not the murderer. They also ruled out robbery as a motivation for the attacks, as money and valuables was left in plain sight and were not stolen by the intruder. Near the couple's home, a message written in chalk read, Mrs. M- Joseph Maggio will sit up tonight. Just write Mrs. Tony. This was later interpreted as a reference to the alleged attack of another couple that were Italian grocers in June of 1911. Anthony and Joanna Scrambia, the latter, was nicknamed Mrs. Tony by some of her customers. On June the 27th, another couple was attacked in the night time. Grocerer Louis Besmia and his mistress, Harriet Anna Lowe, were found with head blunt injuries by a bakery wagon driver. They both survived the attempt. After the arrest and subsequent release of an African-American suspect in the case, Harriet in what was deemed a delirious episode, alleged that Lewis was a German spy. 
Later, she claimed that he was also responsible for the June the 27th attack. Lewis was arrested but was later released. Because of the outcome, the police sensationalised the story. Horrifying accounts of brutal murders would soon become a regular occurrence for New Orleans citizens in 1918 and 1919, and the murders all played out in similar fashion. Door panels were chiseled out of entrances through which a reportedly large man would access the lock and enter. Wielding an axe belonging to the residents, the man would swing at his victims while they were sleeping. The homes were ransacked, but items were rarely taken. The survivors were often unable to describe what had happened, and the police were dumbfounded and unable to find substantial leads. On August the 5th in 1918, the same night of Harriet Lowe's death, Anna Schneider, 28 years old, awoke to a dark figure standing over her bed. The man bashed her head in multiple times, cutting her scalp open with what police believed was a lamp. Her husband, Ed Schneider, returned late from work after midnight to discover Anna with her face covered in blood. Anna was alive but remembered nothing from the attack. Eight months pregnant at the time, Anna gave birth to a baby two days later. Authorities discovered none of the windows or doors to have been forced open. They arrested an ex-convict named James Gleason who ran from the authorities. There was no evidence connecting him to the crime, so he was released, stating that he only ran because he was often arrested. By this time, police were completely confounded over each case. Having no leads, they publicly speculated that these attacks were by the same man. Five days later, on August the 10th in 1918, Pauline and Mary Bruno awoke to find their elderly uncle, Joseph Ramonio, in his room with two cuts on his head. As they entered, a dark-skinned, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and a slouched hat was fleeing the house. Joseph died two days later, and the cops found a bloody hatchet in the backyard and a chiseled Following Joseph's murder, New Orleans was in full paranoia. People called into the police claiming to have found axes in their backyards and seeing an axeman lurking around their area. It was then that the letter was published by the Times-Picoon on Sunday, March the 16th, 1919, and it reads as follows. Hottest Hell, March 13, 1919 esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit, and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, 
besmeared with the blood of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offence at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the never regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much better for you the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed either in fact or realm of fantasy. The aforementioned letter caused widespread fear, as everyone was already in a panic due to the Axeman's almost supernatural power to slip in unnoticed into a house and paint the walls red. The night of the 19th, all of New Orleans' dance halls, discos, bars and honky-tonks were filled to burst and trained and inexperienced bands played jazz until dawn. Hundreds of parties rolled into existence that night around town. Everyone danced the night away, jazz blurring out of every window, and there were no murders that evening. For several weeks, all was quiet, but people still lived in fear. On August the 10th, 1919, another grocer named Steve Bocker was attacked in his bedroom as he slept. He awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Suffering a blow from an axe, he survived, and upon regaining consciousness, he ran to the home of his neighbour, where he lost consciousness 
and collapsed. He was then treated for his injuries, but was unable to remember the details of the attack. Like the others who had been assailed by the Axemen, nothing was taken from his home, and a back panel on the back door of his home had been chiselled away. On September the 2nd, a local druggist named William Carson escaped the lethal Axemen when he fired several shots at an intruder who had broken into his home. The killer left a broken door and an axe behind. And on September the 3rd, 1919, a young girl named Sarah Lauman was attacked with an axe while she slept in her locked and shuttered home. When neighbours came to check on the young woman who had lived alone, they discovered her lying unconscious on a bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. Though she suffered from a brain concussion, she recovered. A bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. Once again, New Orleans was in a state of hysteria, but nothing more would be heard from the Axemen for nearly two months. The last attack came on October the 27th, 1919, when grocer Mike Peppertone was slain. That night, his wife heard a noise and arrived at the door of the bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. The his murder left his wife and six children behind. And Mrs. Peppertone, the mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. The usual clues had been left behind. But who was the X-Men of New Orleans? While there are a few people suspected of being the shadowy axe murderer, namely Andrew Maggio, the authorities were never able to get a conclusive or even re remotely solid idea of who the Axemen of New Orleans was. Wild speculation ensured with everyone from demons in hell to the Italian Mafia being suspected of the crimes. But the likeliest suspect was a known anti-Italian racist with a pre-existing criminal record. Here are some theories about who the Axemen was. The Italian Mafia did it. The Axemen of New Orleans victims were mostly Italian grocers, hence the speculation that the Italian Mafia organization called the Black Hand was involved. The Black Hand was known for extorting businesses within local Italian communities, and since Italian immigrants at the time preferred to take care of their own affairs, it was theorized that the victims did not pay the Mafia their extortion debts. Demons did it. No joke, many people at the time sincerely believed that the Axemen of New Orleans was a demon. Back when true crime podcasts weren't everywhere and the concept of serial killers was practically non-existent aside from Jack the Ripper, people thought that a cruel and unidentifiable murderer must be a supernatural entity. Randoms did it. The inconsistencies around how many victims the Axemen of New Orleans actually killed are partly because only some count intermediate deaths, while others count additional deaths that resemble the Axemen's MO. That said, the Axemen was rather sloppy and inconsistent for a serial killer, 
which is why some people believe they were actually multiple Axemen who were, to put it simply, just going along with the theme as best they could. A racist did it. Joseph Mumphrey was a former leader of a blackmailing gang that targeted Italian immigrants in New Orleans and was suspected of being the Axeman after the widow of Mike Pepitone, Pepitone, the last victim, shot him dead in Los Angeles. Incidentally, records show that Mumphrey was imprisoned every time the Axeman of New Orleans went on hiatus. It makes perfect sense that the Axeman of New Orleans, whomever he was, maintains a substantial role in the vast canon of dark New Orleans history that blurs into lore. More than a hundred years later, he remains a fixture of ghost and true crime tours, a marketing gimmick to sell tickets to Halloween-themed jazz concerts, and even a character on the popular television show American Horror Story. But, like much in history, the true stories of the Axemen, and more importantly and often forgotten, the true stories of victims have been too frequently replaced by a simplified narrative of a jazz-obsessed, likely manifesto. And with jazz and murder being two of New Orleans' top claims to fame, it makes sense that the terrible legacy of the Axeman, whomever he was, and his jazz, even if it wasn't his at all, continue to prowl in the minds of New Orleanians and visitors to this very day. Thank you so much for listening to the Freakier Than Fiction podcast. If you got something out of today's episode, then kindly hit that follow or subscribe button so you don't miss the next freaky installment. And I'd love to hear your feedback, as it will really let me know what you think about this episode and other ones you may have already listened to. So, take the time to leave a review and tell me what you'd like to cover in upcoming episodes. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram, it's at Freakier Than Fiction, all one word. And on the Instagram, you can find a Linktree account that has links to all my social media accounts, including Facebook, Reddit, and a YouTube channel, which is currently in the works. I do make sure to read all my direct messages and answer them personally. Every day is freaky for fans of mystery, true crime, creepy, and paranormal. See you in the next episode.